day was clear. Most days in Yemen were. I sat on my flat roof overlooking the village. The school where I taught English was about a mile below, clearly visible, in the valley. Up on the roof was my place of solitude. I could watch the large birds called kites use the valley's air to glide in random lines. There was no true sunsets. The large jagged mountains served to block the sun's descent. On this particular day, I was listening to my cassette Walkman with foam headphones. From my right, the neighbor kids had scrambled up on the roof. It was ritual. They had spotted me before dinner. Ahlam ate in her blue dress, Muhammad in his child robe, and Ahmed in his underwear. Ahlam, her name means dreams, had this gravelly voice and was quick to talk. We conversed in Arabic as her brothers moved about the flat roof in play. She would tell me about her day, about her, what her mom was cooking. I could smell the aroma of selta, a thick stew escaping from the house. It was always a prelude to access to my headphones. For kids in, in Yemen in the late 80s, these were unfamiliar magic. I had a collection of cassettes, Bob Marley, U2, in excess, beats, rhythms. Ahlam would put those headphones on and sway, her head moving to the music, alien music, foreign music, but there was the beat. As the music filled her, her senses, the village quiet could be pierced by sounds. There was no generator humming, as there was no electricity during the day, only coming to life like a monster at night. Occasionally, a car would rumble through on the road back behind my house, or you would hear a person call out loud, usually starting out with, hey, hey. It was the neighborhood mosque that would rise above all else. Breaking the silence was the call to prayer, which was carried by loudspeaker throughout the valley. As Ahlam took in the last vestiges of my home through the sounds of the, of the headphones, I was consuming her world, a world that would remain with me forever. It was moments like these that I really felt far away and at peace, my origins forgotten, living in the moment, of my new reality. Life in a Yemeni village had its own pace. The notion of time is elongated. There are no rush hours or meeting times, no set time to start dinner. The only standard cultural feature that was time sensitive was school, and it was education that brought me to Yemen in the first place. My mornings began with a 20-minute walk into the valley where I taught at the Martyr Shahid El Dais Secondary School. The walk took me past terraced, uh, terraces, terraced fields of sorghum that were still tilled by beasts of burden in the way it had been done for centuries, if not millennia. Students moving along one or of two paths to the school would shoot past me yelling, Sabal Khair, Usted Kib. Good morning, Teacher Kib. Some of the older students would catch up to me to ask a question. Sometimes these questions could be pointed, like, do you really eat pig? Most, re most really struggled with the fact that I, or anyone for that matter, 
was not Muslim, since the nation is nearly 100% Muslim. Other times, they ask more mundane questions that involve something they were learning in English class. Always, despite some of the culturally distinguishing questions, they were respectful and curious. I was the first Westerner they had ever met, so they weren't about to waste it. Once down at school, all of the students would gather on the dirt soccer pitch and say the national anthem followed by a Quranic reading. The other teachers would often look at me during the reading as if to try to see if I was annoyed or interested. Living in such an environment required diplomacy at almost every turn. If I stopped outside the school for any, any reason, students would gather, first in twos and threes, and then in clusters until the headmaster would come over and shoo them all away. Teachers were in short supply in Yemen. As a result, my classes were anywhere between 60 to nearly 100 in a classroom. There were benches in my classroom, but no desks. Students came from miles around to go to school. It amazed me how determined they were to get an education. There were funny stories related to my time teaching there. Once I had a student in the back who would not stop talking. It took me nearly half the year to get most of the names down. Other students were helping me to try to quiet him, so the noise level in class became elevated. Loudly, I said, Muhammad, be quiet, in Arabic. About a third of my class looked down in embarrassment about the exact number of Muhammads I had in class. The most memorable days of the week were Thursdays. Frequently after school, I was invited to have lunch with those in the community. Often their houses sat high in the mountains with a vista out the top floors of their sitting room. These majestic views will stay with me forever. The meals of traditional Yemeni food were followed by the required glass of tea that usually contained a third sugar and a strong dose of sage. What came next was quintessentially Yemen. Their form of socializing involved chewing a mild stimulant that came in the form of soft green leaves of the ghat tree for stretches of four to six hours at a time. It had the effect of making you alert and at ease all at the same time. Chewing ghat and watching the sunset in the mountains of Yemen was euphoric. The mada, or hookah as it's known here, was passed around with strong Turkish tobacco filling our lungs. The bitterness of storing got leaves in your cheeks was eased with bottles of Canada Dry Cola. Got allowed me to think clearly, and often my mind would focus on the fact of how far I was from home. Normally, that should have brought sadness, but my ability to be there in an environment so unlike my home gave me a comfortable feeling of accomplishment. The fellowship and belonging that was associated with a gotchu was unique, and it was during these times when I mo felt most comfortable in Yemen. And by the way, that's me on the left, just so you know. The chew always ended with a cup of tea before I would be driven back to my house near the market and deposited in the blackness of the night. Moving into the corrugated wall that separated my small courtyard from the dirt road, it was a short walk into my rustic house. It consisted of two rooms that you had to go outside to get from one room 
to the other. In one room was my bedroom with a simple mattress on the floor. In the other room was my small sitting room on one side and my two gas burner stove on the floor on the other that served as my kitchen. Outside against the small courtyard was my toilet that consisted of a simple hole in the ground. I had a water tank on my roof <clears throat> that provided all the water I used to drink and clean with. It was the true Peace Corps experience. Many nights I would clamber up on the roof with my mattress, pillow, shortwave radio, and sleeping bag. The generator that provided the town with electricity would shut off at 10 o'clock, throwing the entire village into darkness and quiet. Laying on that roof, I was placed in the irrelevancy of the universe. The stars were so bright that you could cast your hand out and see it on a moonless night. There were no lights to stunt the visuals of the constellations. It was so clear that I could follow the paths of, of satellites in the sky. It was in Yemen that I learned to be comfortable with self. That was something that all the planning in the world could not prepare you for. I was on an island in the mountains of rural Yemen. In those two years, the world outside was changing in profound ways. China shook with the events of Tiananmen Square. The Berlin Wall and communism collapsed. A massive earthquake brought the Bay Area to its knees, and grunge rock was in its infancy. But the seclusion of the village made all those events seem so far away. They were confined to the reports that came out of the small speaker of my shortwave radio through the BBC and the occasional Newsweek magazine we received two weeks after the issue date. The events would change Yemen too. In the few months prior to my leaving, the Soviets left South Yemen and the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen and the Yemen Arab Republic unified. It was the last great gasp of Yemen's salad days. No one knew but the two years that I spent in Yemen would be at zenith. As many of you know, Yemen is experiencing a tragic civil war, and the events that began with Yemen's failure to condemn, condemn Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait during the summer of my departure would begin the long fall of the Yemen state. Leaving Yemen was sudden and without drama, and the thought of returning home was somehow disorienting on its own merit. My last days in Yemen were spent in the capital as I made peace with departure while walking the timeless alleyways in the old city of Sana'a. After two years in Yemen and a half a world away and many cultures removed, I came tumbling back to America. To understand the influence such an experience had on me, you first under, need to understand where I came from. I had never left America prior to joining the Peace Corps. Liberty, a small town north of Kansas City in western Missouri, had been my home for almost the entirety of my life. It sat somewhere between traditional suburbia and rural America. In fact, as a teenager, I joined the Future Farmers of America and raised chickens in my suburban backyard that shared a barbed wire fence with a farmer's field. But my town had a past. During the bleeding Kansas period prior to the Civil War, 
members of my community frequently cross the border into Kansas to vote to extend slavery there. Following the Civil War, Jesse James, a former Confederate turned outlaw, robbed the bank in my town square and shot a man in cold, uh, cold blood in broad daylight. Despite being a killer, local residents considered him a latter-day Robin Hood and protected him from the law before he was finally gunned down. At the age of five, I attended Garrison Elementary School that just a few short years prior had been an all-black school during Liberty's long period of Jim Crow segregation. When I went to high school, I had one lone black instructor that was marginalized. I took sociology with him, and it was one of the few times in my life that I learned about systemic racism. We had one Jewish student in my school and no more than 10 African-American students. I remember hearing about a group of white boys in high school boasting about going to beat up black kids in the only place where blacks could live in town. Even into the 1980s, redlining, the prevention of minorities from moving into most neighborhoods, was in full bloom in Liberty, Missouri. The use of the N-word was ubiquitous. My best friend used it to get laughs, not at people, but certainly about people. When we were teenagers, he and I dressed up as Civil War generals. He as Robert E. Lee and me as General Grant. It was no accident. My present coll collided with my past. I came home from the experience confused and isolated. The first night back in my room, I got up in the middle of the night and turned on the light from the wall switch simply because I could. Everyday, thing, everyday things now had relevance. Meeting up with those that I left, had so, I had so many stories, but found few wanted to listen. I wanted to share with them my newfound appreciation for others far beyond my community generous, family-oriented, wel welcoming people, but this had no relevance among those I had known a lifetime. I remember one party in particular. It was soon after returning home. The stereo played classic rock at a medium level, and there was a lot of alcohol. I sat on a sofa, and sitting two people away was a guy in khaki fig uh, fatigues, holdover from his time in the first Gulf War, as it turned out. He began to talk about his time in the conflict and referred, referred to those on the other side as sand jockeys and, and several other racialized terms. I listened for a time and remember asking him, how much time did you spend with Arabs there? The question jolted him from his cockiness. I remember him responding about he didn't want to spend time with Arabs. The friend that asked me to the party knew what was coming next as he looked down. I began to explain my experience in Yemen. He had been drinking, and he started to talk about he would never do that, and he became more belligerent. I lit into him with the frustration of no one understanding completely my experience. We almost came to blows. It was a struggle that the entire country has been fighting for some time now. Coming home was a hard landing for me. I could no longer identify with many of the friends I grew up with. Over time, some defriended me on Facebook for my views. So much of me had changed that home and the, general, and the general sentiments that remained there were no longer comfortable. The title of Thomas Wolfe's famous novel seemed apropos, You Can't Go Home Again. But then I moved here. 
I did not know that there was a large population of Arab Americans in this region when I took the job. My time in the southwest suburbs of Chicago has provided a kind of bridge. Some of my Arabic language returned. I had completed my master's in Middle Eastern studies shortly after arriving. In so many ways, I had, in essence, returned home by coming to Moraine. It is a place where my experience of my two pasts intersect. This is not a cautionary tale. It is one born out of a unique experience of cultural connectivity. I am better for having the experience in Liberty and in Yemen. What I fail to discuss is that those in Yemen were in cultural isolation also. The challenges of being the only non-Arab taught me about being a minority. In some ways, I could see the community in Liberty and in my village were similar in many ways. Only the moving player was me. I had experienced being an outsider and an insider. I now can relate to both and know how to make an outsider feel comfortable. Now, when I go back to Liberty, I do not need a GPS. All of the spaces are familiar. In Chicago, I am always using my GPS. Despite that, it is when I walk down these halls and greet all of my friends, especially the growing number of Yemeni American students that call Moraine home, that I do not need to navigate the unknown. It is here that I have come home again. For those in the audience that share my story, those who began their lives in another country and now find themselves here, we understand each other. You and I are alike in so many ways. As you sit and listen to me talk, America has changed you in profound ways, just like Yemen has changed me in ways that only you can understand. Thank you. Mm -hmm.